With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast with MyDieselClaim.com. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the brand new official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. A show that will take you deeper than ever before into your football club. And it's just like we go from there to there and it's just shapes and you just watch the ball going in those little shapes. This week, he's played in front of 300,000 people. With the hits come the ritz and with success comes the backlash, but yeah, no, the Brazilians do it for a living. He's a club legend in every sense of the word. And he was with the Seagulls when they were, well, skint. At this point, we were getting gates for about four and a half thousand. From the simpler pleasures of the Widdeen years to the foothills of European glory. I don't know if you're aware of the nature of football tribalism. Now it's like a lot of them have nice things to say about our football team. Brighton runs through him like a stick of rock. And then at one point, that shape suddenly becomes one through ball that suddenly puts someone through. My name is Norman Cook. You might know me as Fatboy Slim, though. The whole thing really is a bit like a weird dream at the moment. It's a bit like... I got overexcited at a match, ate too much cheese before bedtime, and this is sort of this weird dream of like we're in Europe, buying players <laughs> off Barcelona, you know. And I've, I'm sort of running out of superlatives. Obviously, it's your job to talk about these things, but I kind of just run out of superlatives about exactly um, how. It, yeah, I mean, it's gone beyond sort of Roy of the Rovers dream stuff to yeah, some to some weird yeah cheese dream that I'm having. I can remember sitting with you at with Dean, where you just about kept dry. Uh, am I right in thinking you've got all the stamps in your passport, the Goldstone Ground, Gillingham and with Dean? Sadly, not Gillingham. To my shame, I was uh, a, a stellar bit of my career during the Gillingham years and never made it there. You don't think you just couldn't find it? I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the time and in my heart to go there. And, um, and But saved it all up because that was kind of my beginning of transition of just being a fan to sort of being involved in the club because obviously when we came back to the Weed Dean, we were shirt sponsors. So, um, but no, no, I'm afraid I didn't, I didn't get the Gillingham stamp on my passport. Well, we can fabricate one for you. Um, and when you came here as a student at what, um, 18 years old, I think? Uh, yes. What was going on then at the club? I mean, did it feature much in student life? The bizarre thing was it was, it was the FA Cup year. And so I moved down to Brighton and everyone was going nuts. Now, I, at that point, obviously, I didn't have any history of the album and I'd grown up quite close to Crystal Palace. So at first I thought, oh, well, you know, that, that kind of, um, I was on the Crystal Palace end of the rivalry. When I first moved down, it was cup fever. That was, that was the first thing I encountered, which was quite a, a strange and bizarre moment in, in any team's history, I think. It was a flatmate of mine who started taking me to the games and, and wooed me. My life basically is kind of ruled by my career. So I've, there's times when I'm around, there's times when I'm not around so much. Also, I went and lived in Hull for three years, so that interrupted things. Um, so it's, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I'm not always there at the key moments. But I started going to the Goldstone, would have been 89, 90, I think. 
Yeah, 89, 90, yeah. Makes sense. And if you think about the Goldstone Ground now, it was a kind of shambolic, but yeah. kind of charismatic place. It was really charismatic, yeah. It was a great place to go, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and for me, it was like, you could walk to it from my house. And, and you didn't need to book tickets before. You just, you just you know, it's like a midweek game. It's like on a whim. It's like, oh, let's go, yeah. I mean, for in those days, it, you know, supporting the Albion was like a kind of a lifestyle choice in you don't support a good football team, so you support your local football team. Mm. But it was good and local, and it, and it, and it kind of gave you... And, it, and it, yeah, like you said, it was kind of romantic and uh, full of character rather than... <laughs> professionalism, money, results, all those other things that, that sometimes come with football teams. It wasn't a Superdome, was it? No. No, but it had an awful lot of character, and I got to learn the character. We, I, I, I started in the North Stand, but then I graduated to the northeast corner. Mm. There was just a little corner with about 200 of us, and it was the Mona's Corner. And it was like people with a very sardonic sense of humour who really took the mickey out of the club, and, and that was my favourite place to stand. <laughs> I mean, Keith Waterhouse once said that Brighton is a town that looks like it's helping police with their inquiries. You came to a nicely fading seaside town, didn't you? And when you travel for work now, putting on these huge shows around the world, has, has Brighton's profile risen because of the football club? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I spend half my life getting in taxis to airports. And the first thing the driver, when he hears your accent, he goes, oh, where, are you, where are you from? And so you say England, and they go, which part? You go Brighton. And in the old days, there would be this sort of pause, and they might go, oh, um, Quadrophenia or Brighton Rock. Uh, and then, but, you know, a kind of quizzical look. And then the next thing would be, what team do you support? And you'd go Brighton, and there'd be a quizzical look. Where, oh, you have, you, have you got a team? And I've watched in the last 10 years, it's gone from that to people know where Brighton is and know that we've got a football team. And now it's like a lot of them have nice things to say about a football team. I mean, obviously, it's the nature of how global the premiership has become you know people watch it all over the world but also the fact that we're invited to that party or forced our way into that party like literally put brighton on the map for taxi drivers the world over that they now know where brighton is and that it's a city and it's not a suburb of london and they get what it's about don't they they talk about how exciting the team is to watch they talk about the players coming into the club the you know, the new talent. So they, there's a real understanding around the world, it seems to me, of what Brighton are, the, the distinctive nature of the club, isn't there? Yeah, it's good that that's pervading. It was funny because last week I watched a game with a load of American fans with the stateside Seagulls. I think they sort of, they probably analyse it maybe a bit more than us. I think because we're here and we're in the middle of it, it just kind of happens all around us. But I suppose they read about it via journalists who've already kind of broken it down and digested it. And yeah, I mean, the general consensus is, you know, rather than, you know, a kind of uh, a club punching above its weight, now we're seen as a club that's got a plan, you know, a plan that works and, yeah, a plan that works, a local ownership, which seems to be a big thing around the world, and playing beautiful football and playing beautiful football, but scoring goals at the end of it as well. <laughs> Yeah. Just for a, few, for a few years, every cab driver would go, yeah, you play great football. Shame you don't score more goals. <laughs> and the other thing people say, of course, is how the hell have they done that? And you think, well, how long have you got? You know, because I hear that question everywhere I go. How, how have Brighton broken the mould? They're, you know, they're innovators, they're disruptors. Is that what people say to you as well? Um, no, I think, the, I think the Americans definitely understand the Moneyball algorithm concept. Yeah just probably because it's more of an American-style thing. But I think England's got a quite idiosyncratic, did have an idiosyncratic structure about the way that football worked. 
And I think now it's kind of opening up to a sort of more global thing and, and the idea of information sharing and things like that. You know, you kind of figure that 20 years ago that most of our signings were done, you know, some mate in a ballroom and, you know, it's, it, but it's now, you know, people are waking up to the fact that, that it, there is a science to it and there's the communication around the world that you can look at players and, and, you know, fed by the fact that everybody wants to play in the premiership. So we can kind of look further around the world and not just sort of established places like Brazil or whatever, you know, we can look further around and persuade, talk these people into coming to Brighton. Yeah, the signings used to be done in dingy seaside hotels by the likes of David Bellotti, didn't they? Do you remember those days? And they'd be, they'd be snapped in the window of a, you know, yeah, having yeah. Tea, tea and, you know, scones while the player signed. Or it was like Dick Knight's mate of, you know, like there was a lot that seemed to come through, old mates of Dick Knight's. So, yes, no, I mean, it's, it's football's a global game now and we're playing it in a global way. Mm. And, and using, you know, technology and communication to, in, in, in the perfect manner. So your, your big shows around the world, I mean, I've, I've got an image of them as being like the club shop on stage now. How much livery, how much livery do you take, or Albion livery do you display when you're doing a show? I've got, I've got a picture of you in, you know, in an Albion dressing gown with an Albion duvet set back at the hotel. I mean, does the stage show itself that you present, do you, do you, do you project an Albion message at all or do you keep it separate? Absolutely nothing. Right. I don't know if you're aware of the nature of football tribalism. <laughs> I am. <laughs> if you go to another person's city and bang on about your football team too much, they tend to take a dim view. Even abroad? Even abroad, yeah. No, what does happen, it's the other way around. What happens is everywhere I play in the world, absolutely everywhere, I look up and there's at least one Albion shirt in the crowd. Mm. And um, that's a beautiful thing. There's rules in showbiz and, and one thing is kind of keep politics and football out of it because you're only going to lose friends, you know. I played at the Brighton Centre on the last tour mm. and Solly had scored that wonder goal the night before and I did put Solly up on the screen so we got a big cheer, but only because I knew it was Brighton. I'm more likely to wear the local team shirt or that country's... I often get presented with, like, the national team of Bolivia right. and you get a big cheer if you put the Bolivia shirt on at the end of the show. But even then, like, you know, you go to a city and, and they give you the local shirt and you're like, how many teams are there in this city? Because if you, you know, if you went and played in Manchester and someone gave you a United shirt and you put that on stage, you're going to alienate half your audience immediately. So you have to be very, very careful. But no, I don't, I don't, I don't use my shows to plug Albion. And I'll do stuff in Brighton, but outside Brighton, absolutely nothing. I've got you. So it's not long since the club were promoted to the Premier League. I mean, did you think back then, what was it, 2017, you know, we're in the Premier League. As long as we can stay in the Premier League, that's about as high as you can really aim. So if I'd said to you that six years later, Brighton would be in the same European competition as Liverpool, you'd have questioned my sanity, wouldn't you? I would have, I would have told you to stop eating cheese before bedtime. <laughs> I remember when we were talking with the sort of consortium of seven of us that it used to be, talking about the, what would become the Amex and what we could afford and what we could build and how big we should make it. And... Um, and certain people are saying, you know, we should make like a 30, 35,000 seat statement. We're like, why? It's like, well, because, you know, we're aiming to get in the premiership. And it's like, at this point, we were getting gates for about 4,500 at the mm. mid-dean, I think. Mm. So going, the idea of going from 4,500 to 32,000. And it's like, well, look, if we build it, they will come. Mm. And, you know, and if, if they come, then we'll have the money to build a better team and all these things can work. And, you know, and um, around the time that Tony started putting big money into the club, it's like, well, if we dare to dream, we can, you know, we could one day be a premiership side, you know. And But even that seemed kind of a something to, to think about and dream about. But no, it's, yeah, so the trajectory was that to get into the premiership, to 
get into Premiership and not be in the relegation zone for the whole season. Yeah. To, um, but we've kind of, we've kind of, once we got out of that rut, it sort of, and got to the, well, maybe we could be mid-table. All of a sudden, the aspirations have gone through the roof and the aspirations seem to be, you know, what my son calls it, manifesting. Right. Manifesting, which is this new thing with young people. Just like if you meditate about something, it used to be called just dreaming about something and hoping oh, you can it would happen. happen. Well, apparently now it's a thing. <laughs> and if you all manifest it, then it will happen. I mean, obviously, it's not completely based on science, but it does seem to work. So that's the Europa League um, win sorted out, then we just have to manifest it. Um, well, yeah, or just, I mean, obviously, I think Tony Bloom had all this planned out from, you know, the word go in his poker hand. This is like, you know, the second to last, you know, I'll see you that and I'll raise you that. So I think Tony probably was the only person who knows exactly where it's going and the rest of us are along for the ride. I don't suppose you've ever played poker with Tony because you've still got your house, is that right? Or... Yeah, and my children. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm not stupid. <laughs> it would be an interesting thing, though, yeah. if you kind of... Uh, I don't know, if you had a limit, you know, it comes to a limit to what you'd lose. It'd be interesting to play poker with Tony Boom. Just thinking back to those early days, your, your involvement was really about survival, trying to help out, doing the right thing, wasn't it? It was just yeah. really keeping the club. You had no grand It started with blackmail. Yeah. Basically, Dick Knight told me, unless I put some money into the club, they were going to sell Bobby somewhere. <laughs> and he dressed it up a bit. And I said, I said to him, Dick, that sounds like blackmail. And he said, call it what you want, dear boy. That's the situation. It was about the survival of the club. It wasn't about building anything. It wasn't about. It wasn't even about getting the Amex. It was about the club staying afloat long enough to maybe get to the Amex. Yeah, I mean, Bobby Zamora was Dick Knight's hostage for quite a long time, wasn't he? <laughs> he probably, he probably spun that yarn to a few people. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was, it was just about the financial survival of the club at that moment, and mm. it was about paying the players' wages. I think that Christmas, mm. my my first instalment. So it wasn't any part of a, of a bigger plan. It was, just putting, it was, the, putting a turkey on the table of a player. That's all you were really in, uh, up for at that point. Yeah, um, pretty much. So which, um, which Europa League games are you going to? Right. Um, I don't know because I, I, basically I was in America for the draw and then we had a kind of a, a rough idea. The trouble is with my job, I tend to play at weekends and Thursday is a little bit close to the weekend. So the first two games I knew that I couldn't go to because mm. I'm going to be in America and then Japan. The two away ones that I can go to are Ajax and um, Athens. But the plan for me was always to do a gig around, around the shows because I've DJed at many World Cups and it started when I was in Japan when they got the World Cup. I remember seeing you there. At that point, I was, I was quite big in Japan. Mm. So I was saying to the promoters, oh, it would be lovely to come out and you know, see something. And they said, well, why don't you do gigs? Around while everybody's there, and then you can go to the matches, and, and I was like, what a great mixture of my job and my pleasure. <laughs> so that's, yeah, so we started in Brazil, and I sort of came to be the official DJ of the World Cup, and I'd play the night before or the night after an England game. Um, so we're refining the model now that I think I've got to play that night after I play a club show. Due to the very short lead time, I haven't got time to put together like a stadium show, so it'd be in a nightclub, so that means we could play later, so that everyone could yeah just go there for a laugh afterwards and i yeah i've this dream that you know the ajax fans will be dancing with the Melbourne fans it'll be beautiful we'll be celebrating a great, beautiful game of football um the reality is we're definitely going to do something in athens 
Not sure whether time-wise I can do anything after the IX one because I've got something to do the next morning. But we're talking about we're, the intention is there. Right, so we're not going to see you up at the Parthenon, you know, in this, like, Pavarotti. It's going to be a bit more low-key than that. Isn't it? Yeah, it'll be, some, it'll be some dodgy Greek cup, <laughs> Greek nightclub. <laughs> OK, right. Um, so everybody well, lower their expectations. Well, I just, I'm, it's, bizarrely enough, I just played in Athens uh, in the local park earlier in the summer. And so I've got a lot of friends there and we know a lot of people. In the draw, there was this kind of jeopardy of like, what if we get Kazakhstan? You know, what if we get somewhere where we, we, we don't know any promoters or... But the three places we have, the, the places that I've all played before and people know me there, so I know I can get a gig. So Athens definitely, Ajax possibly. And then probably the Ajax home game, we're going to try and put something on for the Ajax fans so that invite them and say, after the game, either at the stadium or a club in town to do a thing and invite the Ajax fans to come and dance with the Albion fans. Yeah, it's yeah. my spirit of bringing football bands together and hoping they have a beautiful time together. Let's hope it works. I mean, I've seen you play, and I know you can play, but the real connection you have with Brighton's players, I, I guess, is that you're used to playing to vast crowds. You know, you're a, you're a very experienced performer. Um, it's a bit of a leap, but some of these Brighton players, when they go into this European campaign, will be on, uh, in uncharted territory. They'll be walking into new stadiums, new conditions, new turf, different pressures, different atmosphere, and all that requires mental preparation. I mean, with, with your job, are you at the point now where you can, you can do that pretty much without thinking too much about it? Do you get anxiety? Do you get, do you get stage fright? I get nerves. I get nerves in the bigger show, the more the nerves, but I kind of embrace and own those nerves because that means I care. It's like, you know, you want the show to go well. Obviously, there's not so much at stake when you're playing a gig to a load of people who like you as opposed to playing a gig <laughs> to a lot of fans who might not, not like you and a, and a team that want to beat you. I think, it, I think it's just about focus. It's about I will, I will do my job in, in so many different alien environments, but the core of it is looking down at the same set of decks that I know how to use and just doing what I know trying not to be overawed by where I'm doing it, just concentrate, well, this bit I know. So no matter where we play, whether it's in, in Newcastle or across the continent, you're going to a different stadium, but you're with your brothers yeah. that you've trained with all week and you've got, you know, yeah. De told you what you're supposed to be doing and just focus on that and forget where you are doing it. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. Check if you are eligible for significant compensation for free at mydieselclaim.com. So what's your record attendance? What's the biggest crowd you've played to? 340,000. Good God. Where was that? That was on Flamengo Beach in Rio. Was that one of the World Cup gigs? Or? No, no. That was... That was um, how, how did they police that? I mean, that's just... Oh, they're really good at it. They've, uh, they, do that, they do that stuff for a living. Yeah. And they... Yeah, we learned... Because that was after I did the, the big ones here in Brighton. Um, they... No, they have, like, delay towers going down the beach so that you can see the screens, but they also delay the sound or... Basically, if you're far back, what you're seeing doesn't have any correlation to what you're hearing. So they delay the, the sound... On the, no, they tell the screens so that they match the, matches the sound. So basically, if you're a mile away from the stage, mm. it, it still looks good. It's, you're not like hearing one thing and 
seeing another. So, and they had, they've got, they have mobile hospitals, they have mobile um, SAS units. They, yeah, they're, they're all over it. It wasn't like when we did it at Brighton, we didn't even have enough toilets. <laughs> yeah, sure. no, the Brazilians do it for a living. Yeah, I do remember the Argus uh, being slightly perturbed by your gig at, at Brighton because there weren't enough porter cabins and that sort of stuff. You know, there wasn't enough plastic cones. There wasn't and... enough toilets. There wasn't enough alcohol in the city. There wasn't enough roads. There wasn't enough parking spaces. Yeah, I mean, we there was kind of we ran out of pretty much everything that night. <laughs> with um, with this Albion side, uh, the entertainment quality level is sky high. Is this the most entertained you've been by by a Brighton side? Yeah, and not, I mean, not just because the results. I just love, I just love the characters. We just seem to have every new, it's almost like a, a sitcom, you know, every new company, it's like, now it's the crazy Japanese guy who did a degree in dribbling, you know, <laughs> and it's, uh, everybody comes in with their own character. So it's a bunch of characters, which is nice because I think in the lower leagues, you just get all these sort of jobbing players and a lot of them are interchangeable. But it now seems like we've got a full squad, like kind of, it ain't half hot, Mum. We've got our own sort of sitcom mm. from, you know, with the Kaiser on one level and, you know, young, young Mr. Ferguson down the other end, you know. It's, see, the thing is, what I've learned being in the Premiership is I've actually learned what all our players look like, like properly. Because mm. I ever, only ever knew them from seeing them. I knew like their gait and normally they're at the top of their hairstyle. Mm. But I didn't really know what a lot of them look like unless they're ones that have really been... But now, because we see them in close-up on the telly every week, we actually know what they are. And, but you do, you get to know the characters. It seems like we don't get jobbing players anymore. We get players with flair and character, and they, are, and, you know, they all come with their own kind of gag or their own, you know... They write their own songs these days. It's a very good point. And talking of which, the, the manager, Roberto De Zerbi, has this you know, about star quality. He has this extraordinary charisma. As well as being a great manager and tactician and innovator, he definitely has charisma, doesn't he? Yeah. And it's scary when you think how how um, much more that charisma is going to come out when, when his English gets better. Mm. Because he's so, like, on one hand, you know, sardonic and, and funny, and on the other hand, passionate. And that's when he's still six months into learning English. Imagine when he's full command of English. He, uh, he'll just be taking people apart. It'll be like kind of Italian uh, Brian Clough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a, you've seen a lot of Brighton managers are all completely different. He looks like a sort of, um, like a world-class level manager, doesn't he? With a, with a fascinating grasp of psychology as well as the tactical side. He just, he just looks like one of those managers, a sort of generational manager, doesn't he? That, that you just want to, you can't stop looking at him and trying to work out how he operates. Is that how you feel? You know, he's, he's a young man and he behaves like a young man, which I think is good in this day and age because so many managers, I don't know, that sort of fuddy-duddy old football manager. Kind Sam Allardyce. Yeah, that's sort of the fast show sketch of, you know, like the sheepskin coat and everything. But so he definitely, he's not cut from that cloth. I feel like we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg with English not being his first language. I think he's, once he understands nuances of our language, I think we'll get to know his, his, his real character. But at the moment, what we're just seeing is, is unbridled passion, unbridled talent, um, tactical talent, mm. and, and a vision and a swagger and a confidence. I think that's, that goes a long way. I think that's something maybe Potter didn't quite have that swagger to believe in us, to believe that we can, you know, to tell the players, you can score goals, mm. just have a bash, you know. Mm. Mm. Or we can take this game on. And, and, you know, when he 
trying to bounce back from West Ham. And, and uh, oh no, when the last time we played Newcastle, apparently he said to the players, he said, don't worry, next time we play Newcastle, we're going to tear them apart. Mm. And it's like, he's, he's like in his head, it's like, I know what we did wrong. It's all right, don't worry, I won't do that again. But then he told the players that they were going to destroy them, and they did. You mm. Know? Mm. And I think that's, that's you know, uh, whether it's a tactical ruse or he actually believes in it, maybe it's, it's, it's deserving manifesting. It could be. Whatever, <laughs> manifestatio or whatever, the Italian for manifesting. Yeah, we need to look that up. We'll put that in later, whatever that is. But he's, um, he's certainly an inspirational figure. And I wondered also, you know, when you're watching the games, what type of footballer do you most like watching? Is it the number 10, the creative number 10, or the winger, or, the, you know, the defensive midfield player, the scrapper? What's, what's I, your I, I lose myself when we get into that rhythm of passing where not even the commentator can keep up with who's passed the who and how many mm. times. And mm. it's like, and there's a thing when we get that little rhythm and all of a sudden the rest of the other, the other team just sort of disappear. And it's just like, we go from there to there and it's just shapes and you just watch the ball going in those little shapes. And then at one point that shape suddenly becomes one through ball that suddenly puts someone through. And whether it's, I don't know, I mean, I, lo I love Matoma. I love, I love that he, you know, he's got like three routes and three things he does and he mm. picks one of them. And even when they know he's going to do it, he still does it. Mm. Every time he goes down to the line, you know he's going to get that cross into six yard box. It's like, and I don't know how, you know, and they know he's going to do it. And I've seen players sort of give up in the second half. It's like, I don't know how, what juju he's doing to us, but he just keeps going past me. What I love most about the way we play is just playing out from the back and doing these little shapes and these little geometric shapes and then at one, waiting until there's that one ball which suddenly puts someone through. And... And it's not about the players, and that's what every you know, manager will say, or every you know people. Oh, it's not about the stars. It's not about having that hot striker. I love it that, that everyone will have a, you know on their day will will score goals, and and you know people like Solly scoring goals. It's just like yeah. again, it's like what well, pinch me. Well, I mean, I've been covering football for thirty five years, and I'm looking at this Brighton team, and I'm still struggling to work out how it how it's so effective, you know, how it can be so good, what they do on the training ground to make it that effective and lethal. It's, it's like watching a conundrum every time. You're trying to, you're trying to decode it, aren't you? Mm. But it, it defies decoding. Well, no, so I think if, if I was the opposing side, I would try and decode it. I don't, I just, don't seem to be able I to. just enjoy it. I just, yeah, yeah it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Then West Ham watched and watched, worked out what we did and worked out how to stop it. Mm. And, uh, which is quite interesting because... Was it eighty six percent possession we had? Pretty and, much. And 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 then eighty six percent, and then but then they would just wait for us and hit us on the break. And I know what they'll you know deserve. Obviously, will go. Don't worry. Next time we play West Ham, we will destroy them. <laughs> and it's and it's a pleasure to watch um, you know Manchester City struggling against Brighton. Maybe not struggling, but thinking, Christ, we've got a problem here. You know, we've got a challenge here. This this lot. Uh, they're serious. I think I think they're strangely enamoured with us. I think they're. Strangely, if that last game at the end of the season, the last home game, where we got a draw off them and they'd already won, and we didn't really need, it, but but it was like it was like two gladiators sort of doffing their caps yeah. and going, let's have a lovely game of football. We're not going to kick each other off the park. Mm. Neither of us have got anything, but let's just play a beautiful game of football and both celebrate the great seasons that we've had. I remember the season, uh, well, the, the first game out of lockdown when we beat them, and that felt really good. That felt so good. Yeah. But this time it was like, you've already won, so, you know, there's nothing to play for apart from the, the game itself. Mm. And I just thought it was a beautiful game of football played in. But they, but they respect us. They respect us. I, I'm not sure they're actually scared of us. 
but I think they respect us and and um, uh, Pep's always had a, 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 nothing but nice things to say about the way Pep. Well, that's the thing. I mean, everyone always used to say we play brilliant football. Shame you don't score more goals. Mm. But now they now they now. I mean, we haven't talked about the the, the uh, other people's attitude to to us and to our fans, which is that's one of the downsides of what's going on now. Right. Whereas everybody saw us as the, the lovable eccentric underdogs. Now, and then it was like, oh, you know, rest of them having a good season, they're punching up their weight. Now, they're actually, you know, they're, they're accusing us of being entitled. They're moaning because we won't sell our players to them cheap enough. And I've detected with, you know, with the hits come the writs and with success comes the backlash. But this is something I've never encountered before. People not loving me because I'm an Albion fan. They'd always just sort of feel a bit sorry for you and go, oh, bless you, you yeah. know, you Albion fan. But now I think the, uh, whether or not the other teams... The actual players are scared of us. I think the other fans are starting to resent us. And we're going we're to have to, especially in Europe, we're going to have to show that we haven't got that same sense of entitlement and that we are, you know, fans. And we're aware of our place. We're all aware of our place, but our place is not. You haven't got the history to stay on, to hang on to good players and that you shouldn't have aspirations above your station. So they've gone from being pity to envied in a very short space of time. It's, yeah, and it's a very short journey, apparently. <laughs> Yeah. Well, finally, on a personal note, Norm, I saw you in the House Martins in Bristol in the mid-1980s on a boat. Probably won't remember it. Thecla. The Thecla. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, I was there. And here you are, still going stronger than ever. And here you are still. I'm, well, I'm still here. I'm not going as strongly as you, but I'm still here. And um, So enjoy the club's first ever European campaign. Norman Cook, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this, the first episode of the new official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. We've got some very special guests lined up, but who do you think should be on the show? And what should we ask them? Drop us a message at podcast at brightonandhovealbion.com. And if you want to get future episodes as soon as they're ready, then please follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast with mydieselclaim.com. Podcasts are normally just like a bunch of people having a chat around a table and hoping it, it, somebody else wants to listen to it. But that actually had structure and meaning. And That was fabulous. Thank is you. Is that right? Brilliant. Off, off the charts. This podcast is a VoiceWork Sport production for Brighton and Hove Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.